Thank you for that, M. Uh, there is a sermon outline. Let me encourage you to actually uh, follow along the sermon outline. Uh, you will also need your Bibles. There are a couple of passages uh, I may want to look at, and it might be helpful for you uh, to look on as well, uh, because that's there as a help uh, for you. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you. Uh, we thank you because you always speak in and through your word. Uh, we thank you that you meet us in our weakness. And this morning, Father, we, th- we pray, especially as we look at this very simple, straightforward parable, that you might meet us in our brokenness, our weakness, our sin, uh, so that we might respond to you always uh, within repentance and faith. We thank you. Your word comes to us as a word of not just warning, but a word of kindness always because you love us. And help us embrace that this morning as we have a look at this portion of the Bible in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning, really, I want to look with you at a very short story that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 12. When Elliot gave me the passage, I looked at it and I thought, wow, 44 verses. How am I going to get through that uh, in 35 minutes? Uh, And, you know, with uh, Litcom Morning, I know sometimes the sermons go for a bit long and I suspect that you didn't want to be here for an hour and a half for me to do 44 verses. So I thought I'd cut it down. I'd do 12 verses uh, with you. Uh, and, and chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, really, Jesus often spoke to his disciples and the crowds. He often spoke to them in stories, uh, what the Bible actually calls parables. Uh, the parable of the strong man in chapter 3. Uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds and the mustard seed in chapter 4. And a parable really is a story to illustrate something Jesus wanted to communicate, a truth or a principle. Uh, That's what's happening here in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. You notice verse 1, Jesus began to teach them, he began to speak to them in parables. And as we look at this parable, um, we're going to see three things about God. Uh, It's there in your sermon outline, very straightforward. We're going to see three things about God. His persevering love, His severe judgment, and His marvelous salvation. Persevering love, severe judgment, and a marvelous, marvelous salvation. Now, this is where we're up to as we come uh, to Mark chapter 12. In fact, things are now going to come really to this climactic clash with Jesus, Uh, between Jesus and the religious authorities of the day. You saw part of that in chapter 11, the chapter before. In chapter 11, you saw last week, Jesus, notice, as he enters Jerusalem, the city of the king, uh, he's welcomed with excitement, uh, with praise. uh, And then things come to a head as he enters the temple, the heart of the worship of the people of God, uh, the Jewish house of worship. And the reason why things come to a climactic clash is because you'll notice in chapter 11, Jesus creates a scene as he enters the temple, the house of worship. He drives out the the money changers, as it were. Uh, He drives out those who are buying and selling in the temple courts. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Uh, He physically stops business in the temple. And as he teaches, you'll see in chapter 11, if you just go back a couple of verses, uh, verse 17, he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple should be a place of salvation for all people, a place that is drawing the nations in. But you have made it a money-making business. And so it's no surprise that you, you read in verse 18 of chapter 11, When the chief priests, the teachers of the law, when they heard this, they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. And this is what's happening when you come to chapter 12. Jesus is still in the temple courts, right? He has not left the temple courts. 
and as he is there, he tells them this parable. Notice verse 1 with me. Who is this parable directed at? Who is this parable actually for? It's directed at those who are looking for a way, uh, looking for a way for him to be killed. Uh, and if you come down to verse 12 of chapter 12, you see the parable is directed at them. You see the them? The chief priests, the teachers of the Lord, the elders of the people, uh, they began to look for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Now, <clears throat> I'm highlighting this for us because you and I are not the them in this parable, uh, which is sort of makes this a really strange parable because this is not a parable that is directed at any of us here. You and I are not the target of Jesus' parable. This parable, a story Jesus tells, doesn't really apply to us very directly because it's a parable against the religious leaders of the day. Uh, but, we do want to, but I do want to say that we will learn something about the nature of God and the way he deals with us. Okay? But primarily, it's actually directed at them. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the first eight verses of this parable. The first thing I want you to notice is that God's love in this parable is a persevering love. Uh, the parable Jesus tells begins with a man who plants a vineyard. And it's a picture of a man who actually does care for his vineyard. Um, you know, maybe some of you, I think, care for your gardens and the fruit trees in your gardens more than others. But you see there in verse 1, notice he put a wall around it. Uh, he dug a pit for the wine press and then he built a watchtower. Uh, you, you put a wall around it to make sure nothing comes in to destroy it. That's what you do with uh, some of your fruit trees, right? You cover it so that the birds don't get to the fruit. Uh, you set up a watchtower to guard and watch out for the dangers, right? You put all these little things in your garden. Like, you know, I go to Caroline Chan's place and she's got these windmills that spin around constantly to scare away the birds so that they don't come eat her tomato plants. And yeah, the equivalent, of, that's the modern equivalent, the Old, Testament, the Old Testament equivalent or New Testament equivalent. You build a watchtower. Someone watches out to make sure nothing comes and destroys the vineyard no wild animal comes in. Now, you and I are not religious, right? Or certainly not religious Jews. But if you were there and you heard this story of a man who plants a vineyard and protects a vineyard, you begin to realize it's not an unusual story. Because the vineyard in the Bible, and it's there in your outline, I put it down there for you. The vineyard in the Bible is often used to describe uh, Israel, the people of God. Uh, Israel is God's vineyard. Uh, the vineyards used in the Bible speak of God's relationship to his people. Uh, they are the vineyard he loves, he planted, he protects, and he provided for, he cared for. And as Jesus described the man planting a vineyard, it's meant to take us back to Isaiah 5. Now, we're not looking at Isaiah 5, but I put it there for you because Isaiah 5 is one of the great love songs in the Bible, right? If you want to think of all the great love songs in the Bible, you've got the Song of Moses. That's a really big one when they you know, get delivered out of uh, Egypt. But Isaiah 5 is one of the great love songs in the Bible, right? One of those you know, top 10 hits, as it were. And in Isaiah 5, this love song, God is described as the man who plants a vineyard. His love for his vineyard is described in exactly the same way. His, his people Israel is the vineyard he has planted, cared for, and protected. Um, you read in Isaiah 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. But the love song 
like like any of our modern love songs, you know, modern love songs today, you know, you listen to Taylor Swift, it's all about, you know, love that is actually given and a love that's spurned. Always about unrequited love, right? The story of um, the people of God, Israel, right, and their relationship with God is often described in that way as well. And so when you actually get to Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5 in this love song also highlights his people's ungratefulness, uh, his people's unfaithfulness, their unfruitfulness, uh, because... You know, Israel's relationship with her God is a very troubled relationship. Uh, it's, it's, it's the story of unrequited love. Love given, but then love spurned. Uh, it's a love song about God's persevering love and their repeated rejection of Him. Uh, they belong to Him. They are His. They are with Him. And then they turn their backs and they run. You know, it's like that Bruno Mars song, Grenade. Uh, okay, I'm only speaking to half the room at this point. Uh, but you know, it's like the Bruno Mars song, Grenade, gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash, right? That's the story of the relationship between God and His people in the Old Testament. You tossed it in the trash, you did. And, and God comes along and He says, I've given you all my love and I asked for love. But you know what happens? They throw His love into the trash. Okay? But the parable Jesus tells now focuses on the tenants of the vineyard. What does the man do in the parable Jesus tells? Well, he rents out the vineyard to some tenants, some farmers, to look after the vineyard. And again, that's not an unusual thing because in the ancient world, that was what happened. You own land. You're the landowner. You rent out the land so that others would farm it. And at harvest time, the landowner, the tenant, uh, they would pay you a portion of the harvest, the fruits of the land. But this is what now happens in the story Jesus tells. Look at verse 2 to verse 5. The harvest comes around. The owner of the vineyard sends a servant to collect some of the fruit. And then verse 3, but they seized him. The idea there is they violently uh, grabbed him, physically uh, grabbed him violently. They beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Then a second servant is sent. Not very, you know, doesn't surprise us, uh, verse 4. But when he sends the second servant, we read, they struck this man on the head. They treated him shamefully. A third servant is sent, verse 5, but they killed him. And at the end in verse 5, we read, he sent many others, many others. Some of them they beat, some of them they killed. And it's a very unusual story at this point. Why would the owner of the vineyard put up with this? Why didn't he just evict them? Why does he keep persisting with them? Was he powerless to act? Was he afraid? No, remember, this is a parable against them. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people. They are the tenants of the vineyard, responsible for the vineyard. They are the the leaders who are responsible for God's people, are responsible for the temple and the ministry of the temple, the mission of God. And the servants are sent to them. They are the prophets that God has repeatedly sent to Israel's leaders. And Israel's leaders have always responded with violence. They have rejected the servants. They have rejected the prophets. They have killed them. That has been the pattern of the Old Testament story of God's relationship with his people Israel and her leaders. He is constantly sending prophets again and again and again. And, and you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, um, the purpose of the prophets in the Old Testament is, you know, often when we think of prophets, we sort of think uh, prophet of doom, 
right? You know, the prophet is always coming and it's always really harsh. Well, they're not prophets, just prophets of doom. They also represent God's kindness. Because when the prophet comes, the prophet is always reminding the people of God of God's kindness, his love for them. And they keep tossing it in the trash. And so all his attempts, God says, are met with rejection and the worst possible violence, death to his servants. Now, the book of Acts confirms that because, you know, Stephen, one of the first martyrs in the Bible in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, as Stephen stands before the very same group of people, the Sanhedrin, right? The teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders of the people, Acts 7.52. Stephen also says, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Christ. And so that's really the story of uh, God's relationship with his people. God says, I gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash. And that's what we're meant to see in this parable. We're meant to see God's persevering love for his rebellious, ungrateful people. He actually doesn't give up on them. He continues to pursue those whom he loves, even when it's met with rejection and violence. Notice verse 2 to verse 5 again. There is repetition there. He sent a servant. He sent another servant. He sent still another. He sent many others. You see there? Uh, And so, listen very carefully. God is not a God of second chances. God is a God of third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth. God is a God of many chances. Repeatedly, we read in the Old Testament, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You know, that's a Bible verse worth memorizing. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the Old Testament description of God. You know, the great myth is that the God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath. The God of the New Testament is the God of grace. We, uh, you know, and, and as Christians, sometimes we have that false dichotomy. We think uh, Old Testament, law, New Testament, grace. As if, you know, for, you know, for the first half of the Bible, uh, you know, all we read about is God's wrath. And then suddenly we turn to the New Testament and suddenly we learn, oh, God is gracious. The Bible does not work that way. The teaching of the Bible is God has always been and will always be a God of grace. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God has always been, and He continues to be, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And Israel's relationship to her God is a testimony to that truth. The story of God giving them everything and then tossing it into the trash again and again and again. Now, finally, have a look with me. We read verse 6. The owner of the vineyard has one left to send, a son. A son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will surely respect my son. They will receive him. They will welcome him. They will embrace him. They will accept him. Instead, we read verse 7, verse 8. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's seize him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him. They violently seized him. They killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, you, you read that and you sort of go, well, that's very unexpected, isn't it? Uh, because it's really foolish. But this is their rationale. This is their thinking. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. You know, the vineyard will be ours because if there's no son, no heir, then, you know, as people who are now here who are squatters, it'll be ours. If we kill and dispose of the son, then the vineyard will be ours. We can take possession of the vineyard. Notice 
that is not that they don't recognize the son. It's not like they don't know who the son is and then they act in violence. No, it's precisely because they know who he is, they respond in the way they do, right? They don't just want to keep the fruit of the vineyard, they now want the vineyard itself. This is the ultimate rejection of God's love. And in Mark's gospel, we know what will happen, right? So we know what will happen now in Mark's gospel. You're coming to the tail end uh, of the story of Jesus in Mark's gospel. You'll know what will happen because you know in the coming chapters, Jesus will be violently seized. Uh, He will then be beaten to a pulp and then he will be nailed on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. The persevering love of God for his people goes all the way to the cross, He sends prophet after prophet, reminding them that they are the vineyard he loves. Even though they have rejected him, and then finally, he sends a son whom he loves to a pack of murderers. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, we now come to verse 9. Here's the second thing. Because it's a question now uh, that Jesus now poses, verse 9. You find it in verse 9. What then will the Lord of the vineyard do? How will the owner of the vineyard respond? To the murder of his son. And as, and, as, and, and as you've read this parable, you know, it's not hard to imagine that the tenants would have thought nothing of the owner of the vineyard because there have been no consequences, right? Now, the owner is either weak or powerless. There's no judgment. There's no retribution. He keeps sending his servants. Nothing has happened. And so the assumption, assumption is, well, nothing's going to happen. But for the first time we read verse 9, he will come... He will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The owner's response is described in his parable with incredible decisiveness and severity. He will come and he will intervene. He will step in. He will not kill. Um, you know, the NIV uses the word kill, but it's a different word used. The word is destroy. Uh, it's not the same word um, that the, the tenants speak of killing the servants and the son. Uh, the vineyard owner speaks of destroying the tenants and so we read he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others more deserving notice the judgment comes not on the vineyard but the vineyard tenants right the tenants of the vineyard why because they've rejected the son of the owner that was sent to them i do want you to notice that in this parable I know it's easy for us to focus on verse 9, the severity of judgment. But in this parable, notice that Jesus' words of judgment comes after a very, 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 very long overture of persevering love. Right? Uh, some of you don't like uh, listening to symphony and classical music, but sometimes the overtures are so long, they just go on and on and on. You go, geez, going on forever. It's like three, four minutes, five minutes. When are we going to move? Right? Well, it's like that. You're meant to actually read this parable and go, wow, the overture of God's persevering love is long. It's endless. Again, it's a reminder to us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But judgment finally comes, and when judgment comes for the rejection of the Son, it is severe. But Jesus doesn't end there, does he? Because notice what he now says in verse 10 and verse 11. So have a look at verse 10 and verse 11. He says to them, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? You know, you're, you're religious, right? Israel's religious leaders, chief priests, teachers of the law, elders of the people, right? You know your Bibles. And this verse actually comes from Psalm 118. 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. This is Jesus' take on what's happening in the temple courts. Uh, this is Jesus' take on what's happening between him and the religious leaders of the day, right? The chief priests, the teachers of the Lord, the elders of the people. He is saying, you don't realize that I am the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone of the temple God is building. He will be the house of prayer for the nations. The unfruitfulness of the temple's ministry, uh, all the religious leaders, it's going to end. And God will use their rejection of him to build a far greater temple than the one they're in right now. They fail God's people, but their failure will not derail God's plans for the nations, for his people. Uh, they, they've rejected God and the Son, but the rejection will not derail God's plan for God's mission. He will turn the rejection and death of his Son into a marvelous salvation for many. Now, we know that in our Bibles, we're not looking at it today, but as the New Testament unfolds, you know, when you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, we read as well, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Jesus is the cornerstone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. A precious cornerstone. And then he says, we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple by trusting Jesus, the cornerstone. Uh, we read in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to verse 22, Paul will go on to say that Jesus is the cornerstone, uh, the cornerstone who brings in not just Israel, the Old Testament people of God, but the nations together to become a new temple where God, deals, uh, where God dwells by His Spirit, where Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, as, as Peter stands before the chief priests, teachers of the Lord, the elders of the people, he will say the very same thing Jesus says. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then Peter says, salvation is found in no one else under heaven, for there is no other name under heaven given to men or women by which we must be saved. God is going to achieve a marvelous salvation in the rejection of Jesus, the salvation of many. God is going to achieve a marvelous thing in the murder of His Son, the salvation of many. God is going to achieve a marvelous thing in the humiliating death of His Son, the salvation of many. The rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is going to be the means through which God saves many people. And you can sort of understand why the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people, why they are hostile, why they're angry, Right? Because Jesus threatens their power. He threatens their position, their authority. The parable Jesus tells us is a word reminding us, not just of God's persevering love, but also God's judgment. Because Israel's leaders are no different to God's people Israel. A history marked by persevering love and judgment. Persevering love and rejection of God. Persevering love and unfaithfulness and ungratefulness. They are the tenants in the parable. They are the ones who rejected and killed the prophets. And they will now kill the son. They are the ones whom God will judge. They are the ones who have rejected God's cornerstone. So it's no surprise. Notice verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders of the people looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Now, like I said at the very start, you and I are not the target of Jesus' parable. This parable Jesus tells doesn't apply to us directly because you aren't the religious leaders of the day, right? But we can learn something about the way God deals with us. Three things about the nature of God, okay? It's there uh, in my three concluding points. Here's the first one. 
Firstly, God's persevering love isn't limited to them, Israel. It's also to us. I want you to remember it this morning. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It was true for them, but it's also true for us. You know, in fact, we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, Romans 2, verse 4 is one of the Bible passages that I'm going to encourage you to have a look at right now. Romans 2, verse 4. We, we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that when we treat our sins lightly, and there are no consequences, when we leave no difference to the world around us, and there are no consequences, uh, when we condemn others for the things we ourselves do, when we disregard our hidden sins because no one knows and there are no consequences, Paul says, listen very carefully, Paul says, God has been kind to you. God has been kind to you. God is being patient with you. God is showing, the word is, you read in Romans 2 verse 4, God is showing his forbearance. He's showing his mercy, his leniency, his restraint. And you read Romans 2 verse 4. Are you showing contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That, that whole section there is about why God withholds judgment. The kindness of God in not bringing the full weight of His immediate judgment into your life is meant to lead you to repentance. The fact that there are no immediate consequences for willful sin, disregard of God's will and His word, is not an indicator that God is powerless or absent. It's a reminder to us that God is is kind and He's giving us time to repent. It's a reminder to us that God is kind and giving us time to repent. The Lord is always compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love so that you and I might repent. Uh, it's interesting that Paul's final words to Timothy in the church, you know, we, we don't often look uh, at the final words of a lot of the epistles, but they're so significant, you know, they're final words to the church. And, and Paul's final words to Timothy in the Ephesian church, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, he writes these words, and we, would pay, we, would pay, we should pay attention when we hear these things, is to remember, 1 Timothy 5, 24, is to remember that our hidden sins cannot remain hidden forever. That's the warning, 1 Timothy 5, verse 24. Our hidden sins cannot remain hidden forever. Uh, you know, Paul writes to Timothy, and he writes, he says, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. In other words, some people sin, they're so obvious, judgment comes, there are immediate consequences. And then he says, the sin of others trail behind them. It's not obvious in your life or my life. There are no immediate consequences, but it will come. So listen to that again. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them, but it will come. Church, the fact that there are no immediate consequences in our lives for willful sin and disregard of God's word is not an indicator that God is powerless or absent. It's a reminder to us that God is kind and giving us time to repent. And so maybe just maybe like Israel, like the religious, God has been kind to you today. In fact, God has been kind to you and to me each week as you hear His Word. Has it ever occurred to you that He's extending His grace in your life? The writer to the Hebrew says, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Don't be like the Old Testament people of God who perish because of their disobedience to the Word of God. 
And then it says, nothing in all creation in your life or my life is hidden in God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews 4, verse 7 to 13. Church, the fact that there are no immediate consequences of willful sin and disregard of God's word in your life is not an indicator that God is powerless or absent. It's a reminder today that God is being kind to you and he's giving us time to repent. And maybe, just maybe, the kindness of God's persevering love for you will lead you to personal repentance today. Secondly, God's persevering love does have a timeout in God's economy. You know, it's interesting, right? Because in the parable Jesus tells, it's the final rejection of the son that leads to judgment. Notice that in the parable Jesus tells the tenants, they're only stewards in the vineyard. They have no regard for the owner of the vineyard, his servant, his son. They will not acknowledge him and neither will they give him what is due him. In fact, they want the vineyard for themselves. They want to be what? Lord of the vineyard, don't they? They actually want to be Lord of the vineyard. Uh, and in many ways, what you see in the parable isn't just the sin of the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders of Israel. It's not just the sin of the leaders of the people of God. It's the sin of all people. Do you know that? It's the sin of all people. I say that because it sounds so much like Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. Have a look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. Uh, Romans 1 puts it like this, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. You could say of this verse, for although they knew the owner of the vineyard, they neither glorified him, neither did they give thanks. They didn't give him what was due to him. Their thinking became futile and foolish. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the Lord of the vineyard for images made to look like themselves. They sought the glory of the owner of the vineyard. And so they do everything to erase him. They beat up his servants. They kill his servants. They kill his sons, son in an attempt to take the place of the owner of the vineyard. That's the sin of all people. Now, there's a few new faces here that I don't know. You might not be a Christian. You might not even believe in God. But Christian people do. And their belief in God or a creator is not grounded, you know, it's not based on blind faith. It's based on reasonable grounds. Christian people believe there's a good God who's the creator of the world in which we live. Because it's fair to assume that there is design in the world. Then there must be a designer, right? Uh, it's fair to assume that there are laws of nature, then there must be a lawmaker. It's fair to assume that if there's beauty in the world, there's an artist. And so in the Christian worldview, there is a good God who is the creator of the world in which we live. Now here's the problem, isn't it? We think we can live in God's world and ignore him and erase him and dismiss him and oppose him and get away with it. Uh, we think we can ignore God in our lives and just not face the consequences. In fact, we want to be masters and lords of our own lives, don't we? Uh, we have no need of God, and so we do everything we can to push him out of the picture to erase him, and we strive really to take his place in life. We want to be lords of our own little vineyards. The posture of our hearts is always one of defiance when it comes to God. In the words of William Henley's Invictus, it matters not how straight the gate, it matters not how charged with punishment the scroll. I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. That is to live in defiance of your creator. Now, did the th tenants think they could get away with it? Of course they did. 
Do people today think that by erasing God, ignoring Him, dismissing Him, adopting a posture of defiance in life, do you think they do they think they can get away with it? Well, they, they actually think they do. In fact, I think we do. In fact, 2 Peter 3, and we're not looking at this passage today, 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3 speaks of men and women in our world scoffing, scoffing, mocking God, living by their own desires, living in defiance of God. They live their lives adopting a posture of defiance, saying, where is this judgment? 2 Peter 3. Nothing's happened in our lives. Nothing's changed. Everything goes on as it always has. And then Peter responds. And I'm going to read that response to you. Peter responds to Peter 3, verse 8. He says, friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, nothing has happened in your life. It's because he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. It comes like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything will be destroyed in this way. So what kind of people ought you to be, Peter says? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. There is actually a timeout in God's economy. There is a timeout in God's economy in your life and in my life. And it hasn't happened because God is patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but to come to Him in repentance. You are alive and you are here today because God is patiently persevering in his love for you. Repent. But notice there's also a severe judgment that will come. And no one escapes it. It speaks of consuming fire that destroys everything. And that tells us there's actually a time's up, time's up in God's economy. In your life and in my life. If you believe in justice, and I'm sure all of us do, then it's fair to assume that there is a judge. You cannot live your life ignoring him. Dismissing him, adopting a posture of defiance, there will be a judgment. I read Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom you and I will give an account. Thirdly, salvation is ours because of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. You see, there is hope, isn't there? Even in the severity of judgment. On the one hand, we see Jesus rejected by the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders of the people, violently seized and crucified. On the other hand, we see Jesus willingly going to the cross to give his life for many. That's what we read in Mark's gospel as well. Mark 10, verse 45. He didn't come to be served, but to serve us and to give his life a ransom. Notice, not for a few, but for many. A ransom for many. He saves by being rejected. In fact, it's our rejection of God that sent Jesus to the cross. He came to save an undeserving people. He came not to gather a beautiful people, but a disfigured people. He came not to give up his life, a ransom, a payment for good people, but for bad people. Remember what Jesus said, you know, as you've looked at Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call God-haters, God-defying people, people who can't meet God's standard. The myth is that Christianity is for people who've got their lives together. 
You know, a lot of people think that. You know, I'll be a Christian when I get my life together. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Christianity is not for people who've got their lives together. The myth is that Christianity is for good people. The myth is that Christianity is a religion of good works. No, Jesus says he comes to call and he comes to invite. He comes to welcome, not the healthy, not the righteous, but sinners, the sick. That's why it's so important to understand this. And, you know, every time I hear Litcom, I keep saying the same thing. I think people get sick of it. But I keep saying this is what makes Christianity different. So different from religious or secular worldviews. In religion, you know, in religion, the God always says, work at being righteous, pay for your sins, do enough for me and I'll forgive you. I'll accept you. Your good works can actually save you. You know, imagine going to the doctor. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, heal yourself. That makes no sense. I've come because I need help. Right? You're the doctor. Right? It's like a doctor who only wants patients who are able to fix themselves. I only want to treat people, right, who can heal themselves so that my success rate always really high. You know, the secular actually works no different as well. The secular might not believe in God, but the secular says you need to be good enough to be accepted, beautiful enough to be loved, smart enough to be recognized, rich enough to be secure. Your hard work will save you. Like a doctor, again, who only wants patients who can heal themselves. In Christianity, God says, let me heal you. Let me forgive you. Let me deal with your guilt. Let me deal with your sin, your rejection, your failure. That's why Jesus came. He came to call and to invite and welcome and embrace. Not the righteous, not the healthy, but the sick, the sinner. God-haters, God-defying people, morally failed people, people who can't meet God's standard, people who have lived their lives ignoring Him. And at the cross, He is saving us. Giving His life a ransom for our sin. Dying the death that should have been ours. Facing the judgment that should have been ours. Crushed for sin that should have been ours. Salvation is ours. Because God's persevering love for you and for me goes all the way to the cross. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's why in Christianity, God says, trust Jesus, the cornerstone, to save you. The saving message of religion is trust your good works. Trust your morality to save you. The saving message of secularism is trust your hard work, your performance to save you. The message of Christianity is very different. It says, trust Jesus, the cornerstone, to save you. Let him save you. God's marvelous salvation is available to all. To you today, because of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. You know, in the Bruno Mars song, Grenade, he doesn't just sing, gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash. He also sings, but I'd still catch a grenade for you, throw my hand on a blade for you. I would go through all the pain, take a bullet through my brain. Yes, I would die for you. And that is what Jesus does for you. You see, the persevering love of God is a reminder to us that he waits. He longs for us to repent. The severe judgment of God is a reminder to us that God will at some point call each of us to account. There will be a judgment. He longs for us to repent today. The marvelous salvation of God is a reminder to us that in the midst of all of this, salvation is available. Forgiveness is possible because of Jesus, the cornerstone who died in our place. He longs for us to repent and trust him. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, you alone know, uh, you alone know the hidden places in our lives that other people don't see. Maybe we 
brush under the carpet, thinking that we can ignore it. Father, you know that we are not always uh, as beautiful, as attractive, um, as guilt-free, uh, as sinless as we'd like to think of ourselves. Gracious God, we want to come to you this morning with a sense of openness and transparency. Uh, in the word of the psalmist, we want to lay ourselves bare before you, the God who sees deeply into our lives, the things that are seen and the things that aren't seen. And we come to you, Father, uh, and we seek your mercy and your grace. We know your love is a persevering love that goes all the way to the cross. And because of that, we can come to you in all our blemishes, our stains, our weakness, our guilt, our sin, knowing that you do truly love us. We also want to come in a spirit of repentance because we know that we somehow sometimes think there are no consequences for our sin. And so we come to you in a spirit of confession and repentance. And as we do that, Father, we ground it all in the hope of the gospel. We look at your marvelous salvation. We don't just see severe judgment and persevering love. We see a marvelous salvation where your son died for our rejection and our sin. And so we throw ourselves today uh, at the foot of the cross, knowing that there forgiveness is possible, a fresh start is available. And so we entrust this all to you, the Lord, the God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Amen.